You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Give us a call, 011-883-0702. Send us a WhatsApp, 072-702-1702. An SMS, 31702. Tweet at M at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons. All of your science-related questions for Dr. Chris Smith. Happy Monday to you, Doctor. Happy Monday, Labo. How are you? I am fantastic. And already the lions are going crazy. Let's go to Hayden in Edenvale. Hi, Hayden. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. And you? I'm very good, thanks. Good afternoon, Dr. Smith. Hi, Hayden. Um, I've always wanted to know, I've never really Googled it or asked, but um, where does a lisp come from? Um, I've had a lisp pretty much my whole life. And uh, the older I've gotten, the less and less it's become prominent. But... I don't know, is it a birth defect? Is it uh, generic or what is it? Why do, why do people have a list? Can I actually ask you a question, Hayden, before the doctor sure. comes in there? Does it bother you that the word lisp has an S in it? Oh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I've always wondered who was the person who did that. I'd like to find the person that did that and ask him some questions. <laughs> no, yeah. no, not, not yeah. Yeah. Doctor, go ahead. I suppose it's a bit like the word roticism, which is the difficulty in pronouncing the sound R at the beginning of the word also begins with an R as Mm. well, doesn't it? So, yeah, difficult. Well, the answer is speech is probably one of the most difficult movements or sequences of movements that the human has to master. And it, it takes us a couple of years from the time that we're born to get reasonable at it because it's so difficult to move a number of different muscles all at the same time all in a very specific sequence and at the same time also rely on your mouth and your anatomy playing ball as well when you lisp usually lisps are involving the s sound and if you think about what you have to do to make those movements to get that s sound usually it's tongue behind your teeth time you've got to to get the s You've got to put your tongue in a very specific place and and form your lips in a certain way and your teeth in a certain way. And if any of those things goes wrong, timing goes wrong, positioning goes wrong, or the anatomy makes it difficult, it can be hard to make that sort of seal of your tongue behind your teeth to get the suh. And so therefore, it's not easy for everybody to get that to happen. And if you've, for instance, got a particular shape of your tongue or shape of your mouth, it can be harder for some people to make those sounds not sound lispy. Also, some people have false teeth, dentures, they have um, implants in their mouth. And this can also make getting that seal of your tongue behind your teeth to get the suh sound a bit more tricky. So really, it does come down to the fact that we speak the way we do because we copy everybody else. And some people's mouths are not the right shapes to make the words as perfectly as other people. So they end up saying them the way that it's natural for them to say them. doesn't mean it's wrong, just means that that's the way it sounds when they say them. Fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Hayden in Edenvale, for that question. Uh, Kanye in Midrand, hi. Hi, Lamkhile, it's Kanye. Uh, hi, Doc. Yes, go ahead, Kanye. Yes. Um, I have a question. I just want to find out what causes, I have a, a, a feeling or a sensation, you know, when you wash dishes with warm water or maybe you've taken a, a long bath with uh, hot water or warm water. And then uh, in your stomach, you just have, uh, you know, that uh, your, your your stomach muscles, they contract or there's, uh, you know, some sort of a hiccup or, or something that happens, you know, when, you, when you're when in warm water or you're washing dishes with warm water. So I don't know if it's just me or there are other people that have the same sensation. 
that's a new one on me. I, I don't have this happen to me. I don't know anyone else that has described that one specifically. But we're all different, right? And here's my weird neurological foible, which is that if I pinch my elbow, I actually get a pinching sensation on the side of my chest, roughly where my elbow is, but wow. on my chest. Now, if you do that on one side, it happens on the other side as well. It's not so surprising that that happens, though. And people say, well, that sounds a bit odd. Why would your elbow actually send signals to your chest wall above your ribs? Well, the reason is that when we develop, we start off as a flat plate of cells and roll up into a tube with another tube inside that tube, which is basically the mouth down to your bottom end is the tube inside with the skin being the tube around the outside. And when your limbs grow, they start as buds, which come from the top part of that flat plate and grow outwards. And the arms grow outwards and then round and the legs do the same. And as they do that, they pull the nerve supply that was supplying that patch or segment of your developing body with them. So therefore, unsurprisingly, there will be some nerve territory which is pulled into your arms, which actually comes from your uh, axis, from your chest, your thorax. So therefore, you're getting a referral of some of the syndrome, some of the, some of the symptoms or sensations from other remote body parts onto that other part of the body where the nerves came from. So just an example of how we're all wired up just a tiny bit differently and we all have some weird neurological foibles. And sometimes when you have a certain sensation, there can be a bit of crossover in the nervous system. So one modality, in other words, type of sensation can stimulate another. So there's that aspect to it. There's also sort of psychology going on as well, which is that sometimes it drums up certain sensations or emotions in you when you have a certain experience. And that in turn can make you think or feel a certain way. So all these things could be going on to produce this rather bizarre sensation you're describing. All right, thank you so much, uh, Kanye in Midrand. Let's go to Palisa and Mulder's Drift. Hi. Hi, thank you so much, Rilebofile. Hi, uh, Dr. Smith. I've got a question that has perplexed me for a long time, and it's about cellulite, and I'm sure a lot of uh, women also are very interested. I just want to find out how come other women have more cellulite than others, even with exercise and, you know, drinking uh, water. So is there... A cure for it that really works, or should we just live with it? Hey, Palisa, it's rough, hey? It is rough. <laughs> <laughs> there are many women and men who are like, I also want to know, doctor. <laughs> yep, so cellulite is the word we use to describe the dimpled appearance of fat beneath the skin. This is just subcutaneous fat. All of us have fat. It forms a layer between the dermis, the bottom of your skin, and the deeper tissues. And it's where the body stores excess energy. And different races, different sexes have different distributions and amounts of that fat. Now, obviously, the more you eat and the more fat you are, the more fat you're going to have to store. But at the same time, some body shapes will actually have, and particularly if you look at, say, bush people, the, bush, the Kalahari bush people actually had very big bums. And this is a fat store. So it does vary according to where you look around the world. Different people have different anatomies and different assemblages and build-ups of fat in different places. So it's not pathological. Women, on average, have more subcutaneous fat than men do. And there are a range of reasons why that might be the case. Probably a reserve for pregnancy, a reserve for breastfeeding in energy terms, perhaps. But what that means is you're more likely to spot it in women, but you're not exclusively going to spot this in women. And when you have certain amounts of the, the fat in certain places, because it has weight and what holds your skin in a nice, plump, springy way is elastic tissue. 
And if you put a lot of weight in the skin, then it will stretch the skin. And as you get older, you tend to lose elasticity of your skin. The elastin, elastic fibers, break down and are lost. And the fat builds up because most of us do get fatter as we get older, up to a point. So you've got a combination of more weight for your skin to support, less elasticity, and you're more likely to see this in women because they have more subcutaneous fat. And so you see these blobs or nodules of fat because the way that the fat is deposited in subcutaneous tissue is into these uh, locules of, they're called locules of adipose tissue. It's where the, the fat storing cells tend to form groups or clusters. And so when you see these dimples in the skin, that is a particular cluster of, of fat storing cells. And they happen to be more prominent because in that particular area, they have made the skin stretch a bit more. And so they tend to stand out. It's not pathological. It's not harmful. And with uh, kind of weight loss and toning and that kind of thing, you can preserve the elasticity of the skin and reduce the amount of um, fat that's there. But it does happen to everybody. And skin does become a bit more stretchy, as less, you know, less elastic and a bit more saggy as we get older. So it might make this sort of thing a bit more apparent. But everybody ages. Everybody's got their baggy and saggy bits. So we all just have to live with them and get used to it. <laughs> Thank you for the reality check there, Doctor. We continue with all of your questions after this break. The Naked Scientist. And it is just going 10 minutes to 3 o'clock and we take your calls on 011-883-0702. The WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. We continue with Dr. Chris Smith. Diane and Gallo Manor, hi. Hi, um, yeah, I, I've got a question for, um, for a doctor. I, I must say, uh, I, I really am besotted with him. I think he's an amazing, I've never met anyone like, quite like him. Um, yeah. Super so, smart, well eh? Done. Super, super smart. Yeah, I know, it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could be as smart as him. Um, so, so, um, your previous caller said about the cellulite. Um, I read up a while ago, they said if you take, um, brown sugar, olive oil, and coffee grounds, and if you um, mix them and you rub them on the cellulite, that's supposed to help? I don't know if that does or not. Um, I, I don't think so. And uh, I would, uh, you'll, you'll smell like a, a coffee barista. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and probably attractiveness will be will be <laughs> regarded differently for different reasons. But no, I, I don't think that's going to work for a number of reasons. Um, okay. I think if, if you think about why this is occurring, why we get cellulite, it's for the reasons I've outlined, which are that you get a deposition of fat in the skin, and that's natural and normal. Yeah. But as we get older, the skin does lose its, its natural elasticity. And if you want to do yeah. a, t a sort of test on this, if you, I don't know if you've got kids or not, but if you know any young kids, just ask yes. them to lend you their hand, pick up their hand, and just between finger and thumb, lightly pinch up the, the skin on the back of the hand until you've got a sort of uh, a little um, blob of skin pulled up between your finger and thumb, and then let it go. And in a young child, it will go ping and go straight back to a flat surface. If you do this in someone of, say, my vintage, and I'm not that old, <laughs> you'll notice that the skin stays heaped up for a little while and then slowly yeah. flows back to where it started. That is the okay. loss of elastin or elastic tissue that comes with age. And it's a natural process. The skin does become yeah. a bit less elastic as we get older. And so if you put a heavy weight in the skin, less elasticity, and skin uh, can grow to accommodate more mass and stretch uh, anyway, that's how skin works, you're going to get 
blobs and dimples in the skin because there's more mass in those areas. Unfortunately, just just slapping on something that makes you smell like a coffee shop uh, <laughs> might distract you from what the problem is, but it won't make it go away. All right, thank you so much for that question. Lerato in Soweto, hi. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks, and you? I'm good, thank you. I wanted to find out, so last year um, I suddenly became allergic to chicken and I've been eating chicken my whole life. So all of a sudden now I can't eat chicken and eat anything like birds, the doctor says. So how does that happen? How do you just suddenly become allergic to something you've been eating your whole life? Mm. Oh, no, I'm so, so sorry to hear that. that. Mm. I'm so sorry to hear that because chicken's delicious and, uh, and I, I love a bit of chicken and uh, eggs and so on. So I'm very sorry to hear that. I would be bereft if it happened to me. The answer is that you can develop new allergies as you go through life. And I have uh, spoken to an allergy specialist at the hospital I work in about this kind of thing because I was interested to ask her because she runs a clinic where they help people with allergies. How many people who come to the clinic are older people who get a new allergy later in their life? Is it just something that happens to young people? And she said, no, absolutely not. They get equivalent numbers of older people and younger people who develop allergies across their life. What's an allergy? It's where your immune system, which normally would regard things that are innocuous or harmless, as harmful. So it mistakes basically what you should regard as a friend, as a foe, and you mount a response. And part of that response is the production of certain classes of antibodies, which are called IgE antibodies, which glue themselves onto a cell type in your body called mast cells that make histamine. And histamine is an inflammatory chemical. It basically signals your nervous system that there's something going on in your tissues that, that shouldn't be there and to wind up and sound a burglar alarm, call in the big guns of the immune system. And so why this happens and why you start to make these classes of antibodies and why there is a loss of the control, we don't know. And we have no idea why some people get this and other people don't get this. But it's not abnormal for it to happen. So you shouldn't think, gosh, I'm a freak. I've suddenly developed this allergy later in life when I'm not a kid anymore. It does happen. It's quite common. It's good that you've picked it up. Obviously, if it becomes severe and um, life-threatening and you get life-threatening things such as you feel prickling in your mouth and lips and perhaps tightening in your throat when you are eating certain foodstuffs, this should be investigated. But if it's just a one-off thing and you know that by avoiding certain things you can, you can stay safe, you should be okay. But watch out because there's lots of chicken in lots of different foodstuffs and you need to make sure you don't have an allergic reaction to other foods where you're trying to avoid it. So take some antihistamines out with you as well. That might help. All right. Thank you for that question. Amando in Kempton Park. Hi. Yes, hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. Hello to the listeners. Um, something interesting is weight loss between going to bed and waking up literally four hours later. So I go to bed at 11 o'clock at night, sometimes 20 past 11. I wake up at half past four. So 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, that's five hours. I weigh myself before I go to bed and I weigh X. When I wake up, I weigh almost 800 grams to a kilogram less in those five hours. Now, I understand, oh. I understand all of that, but it blows my mind to think I go to bed, wake up five hours later, between 700 and a kilogram lighter than when I went to bed. Yet, in between, I've done nothing. Haven't gone to the loo, haven't mm. eaten or nothing. I can't understand how you all right. that much. 
All right, doctor. And I think, um, doctor, maybe uh, share with us also on that question. Why is it that people who are monitoring their weight, be it weight gain or weight loss, they're advised to rather weigh first thing in the morning? Well, that's quite a prodigious weight loss for an overnight. Uh, I'm slightly surprised by that. But at the same time, where does our weight come from? Where does it go to? Well, we are the product of what we eat. And when we eat food, you absorb the calories in the food and then you burn them and you metabolize them. And one of the things you do is to metabolize them using oxygen to break up the carbon in the food into carbon dioxide that you breathe out. And when you go to bed at night, you're not drinking, so you're not taking on any fluids, which would add weight. You are not eating, which would add weight, and you are continuing to metabolize. And your basal metabolic rate, which is basically what it takes to keep your body running when you're not doing anything else, accounts for about 55% of the calories that you get through in a day. So therefore, in any given hour, you're still going to burn 60 to 100, depending on your body size, numbers of calories per hour. And so some of that weight loss is going to be because you've continued to metabolize uh, because you've got to run your body. You still need energy even when you're asleep, and that's your base metabolic rate. You've also carried on breathing. And when you breathe, in an average day, you breathe out half a liter of water. You just have to look at the windows on a cold day, how steamed up they are in a crowded room when the windows are cold, it's cold outside, because the moisture is condensing from all the people. Every single one of us, sometimes more when we're more physically active, will lose about half a kilo of water in breath every single day. When you add all these so-called insensible losses together, that would mean that we do wake up in the morning weighing a bit less than when we went to bed at night. Although your one kilo does sound like quite a bit to me, but uh, that may be what's going on. And then just uh, on that, doctor, would you say then your morning weight is your most accurate weight? Well, it is because at that point you haven't eaten food recently. You haven't drunk fluid recently. You have metabolized what you're going to metabolize. And so that's a good baseline starting point. Also, because it's easier to remember to do one thing once first thing in the morning, you're going to get a comparable measure. So you'll get an eight o'clock weight measurement every day. Whereas if you were to weigh yourself at slightly different times of the day on different days, then you might have eaten something or drunk something or not eaten something and not drunk something. And this would vary or distort the measure. So by doing it at the same time every day, you're really doing an apples with apples comparison. Such a pity we didn't get to all of the various calls, but I'll encourage you to make sure you join us again next week, Monday. Uh, We never have enough time, Dr. Chris Smith, but thank you so much for joining us. See you next week. Dr. Chris Smith on The Naked Scientist.